0: Hi, I'm Erin, and you're listening to The Erin Roy Show.
1: Clouds up ahead, just like men.
0: I'm speaking with Winsome Brown. She is an actress, writer, director, mother of two beautiful girls and wife to Claude Arpels. She is a force of beauty, grace, and intelligence. She's Harvard-educated, she's been on the cover of Elle Decor, and as a juxtaposition to those sorts of things, she has literally appeared naked in front of an audience. I was in it. It's almost impossible to define her. I loved her conversation. Winsome is generous. She's generous with her ideas, her conversation, the tomatoes from her garden, and probably just about anything else she has. I honestly think the world would be a better place if more Winsome swooped in to care for it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Aaron. So I am sitting across from Winsome Brown, and we're actually in your closet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come out soon. Which, uh, exactly. <laughs> come out, come out. Uh, which, true to New York, uh, is, is wonderful. Um, so I, I did want to start off by saying something that perhaps you know, but uh Winsome is an incredibly beautiful woman. And as I was reading up and on you, uh I it strikes me that you are truly a renaissance woman. And it's funny, whenever I'm preparing for these, I, I usually sort of turn on some pop music and <laughs> and dance around. And I found myself craving classical music, <laughs> uh, which was funny. And that's not to dissuade listeners because I have found that as high brow as you can go it seems you can also swing rather low as well (laughs) (laughs) that might be my preferred place in fact (laughs) um let's we'll we'll find out where this conversation goes but uh let's start off by talking about beauty actually and and not beauty in the physical sense but just what beauty is to you and and how it seemingly guides your life
1: Gosh, what a good question and a great question at this time in my life because I don't know perhaps it's the news or having just finished playing Lady Macbeth which was really wonderful um I'm in that period of of trying to uh find the ground beneath me and move on to the the next thing and so actually the the quest for beauty is an important part of, of that rehabilitation. And I was, you know, the line in Hamlet of, um, I have of late, how is it? I should know this. Lost all my mirth. Wherefore I do not know lost all my mirth. Uh, Uh, um, I've been feeling a little bit like that. And I think one way around, around that feeling of groundlessness is, um, is attention to detail. And I think mm. that it's through really observing something that its natural beauty can be found. And, mm-hmm. and perhaps that's the job of an artist. Uh, I thought some time ago, uh, well, I was telling you when you when you came in, Erin, about the show that I made about my mother, This is Mary Brown, which was an autobiographical uh, one-woman show that was, was very personal and tender, as well as funny, but it dealt with it dealt with our family on its, uh, at its best and at its worst. And I was bold enough to make this piece partly because of an idea that I had about both beauty and love, which is that the painter, when she looks at her subject and really observes it and tries to capture the essence of that person is, is, is doing an act of love. And so observation is love and through love, beauty is revealed. I think those two things, at least artistically, are very closely linked. And in fact, anything that's perfectly observed, I don't know, you could probably, I, I, I'm sure that I would find exceptions to this, but but I would sort of hazard to say right now that something that's perfectly observed is beautiful. Mm. Uh, so beauty is something that well, they say it's in the eye of the beholder, but I think that if the eye really trains itself on something, then it, then beauty is there. Mm -hmm. We have a statue, a little like, um, a Buddha head that, uh, we, we spend a lot of time, my, my family and I in upstate New York, and there's a place out where there are weeds and poison ivy and, uh, Claude, my husband, put this Buddha statue there. And I said, but that's the ugliest place. Put it, like, by the nice tree. (laughs) And he said, no, no, no. Of course the Buddha should go in the place which is a real place, which is part of life, weeds and poison ivy, um, and look on it and be serene. And somewhere in
0: that there's also a kind of understanding of beauty. Mm, Which is uh, gorgeous in itself that you have found a relationship with your husband where the two of you can sort of walk that path together and have conversations like that that strikes me as um as a fortuitous uh meeting that you that you had
1: well very much so he's uh he's my most important audience member um and also the one who challenges me frequently to be uh more daring to be f- more far out hmm. i mean the wilder and deeper i go with something the more he likes it um, which is to say that you were talking about the the low stuff. He's not as into my, like, crass commercial <laughs> um, dumb comedy, which I love. Mm. Uh, he, he really likes it when it's, you know, deeply far out. Mm. Um, but I love that he encourages me in that way and, you know, would only ever say, you know, go, go
0: further. And it, it's interesting to me that he says go further because from from what i've found and 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 what i've sort of seen of you on stage you you go quite far yourself it <laughs> seems <laughs> i would say further than most women feel comfortable um exposing themselves or or just sort of living boldly which is something that i do hope to achieve with this podcast is to to encourage women to live boldly and without fear so Knowing that even before you met your husband, you seem to be fearless, and I don't know if you feel that way. Um, what is what, what's your way of sort of pushing yourself to, to 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 reach outside of your comfort zone? Dropping that idea
1: in already is an important one. That that this might not be comfortable, and in fact, to be good, it perhaps should not be comfortable. Uh, just having that idea as part of the process mm-hmm. is is an important gift, I think, that I've been given through collaborators. And I also have found uh, years ago when I first started doing solo performances, which really came as a matter of my having moved to New York and being so eager to perform, but not being part of a theatrical community or a film community yet. um, And so just saying, well, I could just make my own work. Mm. Uh, That's how it, that's how it, in a way that's how it started. When I was a, I went to undergraduate at uh, Harvard. And, uh, I did my, in my senior year, I did a play called The Importance of Being Oscar, mm. which was about Oscar Wilde by Michal McLeamore. And that was my first time doing a, a really a solo play and saying, oh, I can do this. I can, I can be the performer in front of an audience in something that's a, uh, you know, a, a complete work of art and that hopefully is as satisfying as if you have many performers there. But what I was going to say is that, that I used to do these, um, fits and starts uh plays oh gosh you were saying how do i push myself uh and um ah yes when i when i started those fits and starts plays i i wrote and performed and directed them myself in the 20 years since i did that i have come to realize and in fact even when i was living in los angeles i realized the benefit of having a director mm. work with me and mm-hmm. so when i'm doing a solo performance now I always work with a director. Lately, it's been my dear friend and collaborator Brad Rouse, um, but I've I've had other directors in the past, and and I think that that uh, outside eye helps me to go further. Certainly, as a performer, as a writer, mm. and as a creator, that's something that comes on my own and and has a little bit to do with what I was talking about, beauty and love, and the idea that hopefully I'll over the course of my life and before I die. Um, write and create some true things
0: mm. uh, mm-hmm.
1: things that have lasting impact and for me lasting impact doesn't mean that they're serious or anything it just means that somehow they've captured something essential about human life mm-hmm. and humor could be just as much a part of that as as something um dire or or sad though all of those things are kind of part of the human condition
0: sure i and that that's um I love what you've said and it sort of leads me to the idea of generosity, which is something that you I, I read something that you wrote and I think you talked about being 17 years old and seeing a piece of theater that had one performer in it and and understanding that it took an incredible amount of generosity to share as one performer on a stage. And you know, sometimes I think the word I think the word narcissistic is thrown around a lot in our society today. But I loved reading and I believe, and I've seen through your work that generosity is where we as performers are seeking to go rather than narcissism.
1: That's, I think that's absolutely right. And connection. I think that, you know, when, when we go into performance in theater or even in, uh, uh, in film and television, it's always about a connection, a connection with, with the audience or with the other actor. In fact, the best performances are often when we, when we're so inside ourselves that that we're not conscious of being ourselves, so mm. I don't know if that relates to, to generosity, but but it does relate to kind of
0: unity. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit because I, I am interested in hearing a little bit about your upbringing, your childhood. Um, it's funny. I don't know where I read this, but that you grew up on Chestnut Park. Oh, if you yes. had, if, right, you wrote that if you uh, made a movie about your life or someone else did, that it would be called Chestnut Park, huh. which was funny to me because for me, it's also, for some reason, important. I grew up on Starcross Drive, which I just think Star is. Starcross. Right? Whoa. Right? <laughs> so when I read that you also have a fascination with the street that you grew up on, it just sort of tickled me. Um, so. Can you describe yourself a bit as a little girl? What was you know? Where did your imagination, your love of of, of the English language and of drama come from?
1: Um, well, so I, I grew up in Toronto. Chestnut Park is in Toronto, Canada, and uh, I had two exceptional parents. My mother, Mary, uh, born Montgomery, but then Mary Brown was her married name, was from Dublin and came from from a big family um, that was. Quite literate uh, in many ways. Her cousin, it, her brothers and sisters, none of them is a is an artist, but her cousin is Paul Durkin, uh, who is a notable Irish poet. So, you know, in the family there was that. And Mum herself was, I, I think, could have been quite talented as an actress. She never really pursued it, but she certainly could tell a story mm-hmm. like nobody's business and was the life of any party she was in and was somebody that I looked up to very much in terms of how she uh, how she was with other people I mean she instantly would put anyone at their ease Mm -hmm. and make them laugh and she was a real iconoclast uh, for whom also (laughs) manners were incredibly important like we had to we really had to behave we had to know how to be how to sit at a table how to be polite Mm -hmm. with everybody At the same time, she'd say, ah, fuck it, (laughs) you know, like, and, and take us, you know, to the beach and make us change into our bathing suits, you know, in the open. Um, so there was a sense of whimsy, uh, Mm. and I think that was something that I ingested that, that I, 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 I do like things, uh, I mean, I, I, there's a part of me that's quite formal, in fact, uh, in my relationships with people, um. At the same time, hopefully, you know, warm and easy, and, and all of that, and I and I absolutely kind of, yeah I I I feel those two things very much. Then my dad uh, is similarly a, a big character. Dad is from. He was from. Uh, he was born in Washington State, and then he ran away to Alaska when he was 15, and he worked construction to put himself through high school. He voted for statehood in Alaska, so before it was a state. It was wow. just the territory. So mm-hmm. Dad's a real, he's got a real American story, which I've actually <laughs> written about. I've, I've interviewed him and made the first draft of a novel, huh. um, which uh, <laughs> bears revisiting uh, and completely overhauling, but it's there in a drawer to mm-hmm. be uh Return to it some later date, um, and uh, you know. So, Dad, uh, as a child, I mean, as a teenager in Anchorage, which you can imagine, Anchorage in the nineteen fifties, Dad said, Chinese people eat with chopsticks. I'm going to learn to eat with chopsticks, and he had that spirit of mm-hmm. uh, of big thinking um, that is is unusual, I think. And so, living there in Alaska, he taught himself to, to eat with chopsticks um, so that he could go to the local Chinese restaurant. And then um, he traveled to Europe on a boat, which, again, was a, a very unusual thing. So mm-hmm. this is somebody who has no uh, no boundaries in terms of what he believes is possible. And he did his best, I think, to... Fill our lives with, with that kind of possibility. Now, dad, his, his work is as a businessman. Um, and yet both mum and dad had a great appreciation for the arts. Um, and especially, I mean, mum just read all the time. And we would go to the theater somewhat. But it was in a way more the kind of kitchen table life that has, uh, has invigorated my art. I mean people would all my friends would come over to, to our house. It was the meeting ground, and dad would hold forth, telling everybody how to live their lives. Um and mum would say, ah, shut up, Cabell.
0: And uh, and get your elbows off the table. Yes, get your elbows
1: off the table. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and um I don't know, it was a it was a vibrant place to be. And and it, and I used to just sit and read books. Um, you know, we'd in the evenings in Canada, we'd we'd heat the house partly, largely by fire, like fireplace places. So we were always having to go down to the basement and carry up the wood. Dad would order in like two cords of wood every few years. Mm-hmm. So it would be properly dried. And uh, and that did a lot to heat our house. But I would sit by the fireplace and read books about witches, mostly witches. Ah, interesting. I liked, I liked witches very much. And so playing Lady Macbeth just now was so awesome. <laughs> I had never been in that play. And uh, I had always loved it probably the most of any of the Shakespeare plays because of The Witches. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. um, I mean, just so awesome. But uh, uh, so there was a fantastical part uh, uh, in in my imagination. Mm -hmm. I was was interested in fantasy. And uh, uh, also, I would wait by the window sometimes, like in the night, because I really thought that eventually a witch would come. They did in all the books. And I really wanted somebody to take me off on an adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no witch has yet come, but I'll put it out there. If you're a witch who can fly <laughs> me on a broomstick, I'll go. Uh, or maybe you're the witch that takes people off on well, magical adventures. <laughs> do you know what's funny is that I told you we've been spending time at this farm upstate. The minute we got there i found myself very interested in what are all the wild plants that grow mm-hmm. and what they do and pretty soon look as listeners <laughs> i've already told you that we're in our closet look right here i'm going to show to erin my echinacea tincture that i have made my own self <laughs> can i from, smell it yes you can have some if you like but it's very alcoholic wow it is very alcoholic um and uh Yes, and I make some John's wort tincture and And this all started balm. just recently up at the... F- yeah. Well, your, 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 your time at, at the, the farm. At the farm, wow. Uh, but so, anyway, you might be right that there is something witchy, but I haven't yet flown on a broom, and that is,
0: that's a big part of my to look forward to. <laughs> From what I know of you and about you, it seems that if you want to, you will, so... <laughs> I, I, I hope so. Oh,
1: actually, one time... So, one, so I told you I did those one woman show one woman shows fits and starts at the, they were at the Cornelia Street Cafe. Is
0: that a name that you came up with? Fits yes. and starts. I love that.
1: Yeah, fits and starts, which is honestly uh, was I mean talk of one true thing. It's kind of how I work. Mm. I mean, there are those people who really have a very dedicated and regimented practice mm-hmm. all their life. I have uh, admired those people <laughs> from afar, but it's <laughs> it's uh, so far not been my capacity so I I tend to like go all out and work very intensely on something and then uh move on to something else uh but but I'll be kind of working around the clock on 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 something for a while and do so it's you do and you sleep starts. when
0: you're do- yes, yes 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 I I so. uh
1: I, I'm not alas because I wish, I, I also admire those people who don't have to sleep.
0: I know, um, I do too. I'm, where do they come from and how do they, I have no idea how they do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally true. <laughs> but back in those days, you were asking about the childhood. Uh, I used to love in my school, I went to the public school in our neighborhood and uh, we would read out loud. Um, it was in the time of tutelage when, you know, for better or worse, the book kind of got passed around and everyone mm. got to read. I remember that, yes. Um, which was, you know, terrible for the kids who, who didn't read as well. Um, it was,
0: from, I didn't think about that, but of course it was very embarrassing for them. Yeah, I think it, I think it was. But a necessary, I mean, whether
1: or not that's the best way to teach it, it certainly is something that I believe in, that it's mm-hmm. great to be able to to, to read out loud. Um, but, um Anyway, I loved it. So when the book came to me, I, I, I loved it. I, lo- I, I, could, <laughs> could read very well. Um, and, uh, I think in a way that was where my, uh, first impulse to perform came from was, was rooted in text and, and, uh, and things coming off the written page and through the voice. And it was only later when I was, I was cast in a play, like a, real professional play when I was 14 a version of Ulysses mm, uh, wow <laughs> because mum's great friend talking of the family oh. mum's great friend a, a woman called Judith McGilligan was the founder of a theater company in Toronto called the Anna Livia theater company with Mary Durkin Judith now lives in Dublin but but Mary's still in Toronto so they did Ulysses every year and uh, I played a street urchin and and loved it and that really like turned me on towards acting forever.
0: And were you outgoing always, or do you have do you have it? I don't know you well. Do you have a shy side to you? Oh, as I well? think I mostly am quite shy. Okay. Oh, interesting. In fact.
1: Wow. Not in, not in a. I don't know. You know, you, if I go to a party and I can be quite ebullient, I know that, but uh, but no, inside I'm quite shy, um, and and I'm not necessarily somebody who grabs the spotlight. Sometimes I do. Mm. And I kind of love it when I do. <laughs> oh, that, that feels so good. But I'm not the one, it's not gonna happen every time. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and I think for some people it is. I mean, they're just going to do that all the time and and be the person who who turns the head. I think that's a part of me, but but there's a part of me that uh is quite quiet. My friend Melissa was telling me about a book she read about introverts and extroverts. And I forget what she said, but she she calls me babe. She was like, "Babe, I think you're a extroverted introvert."
0: <laughs> so I can see that. Yeah, there you are. Well, okay, good. Um, you are actually the first person that I've interviewed that has children. You have two two children, Child two girls, and I'm. We won't spend a lot of time talking about this, but I I'm sort of forever fascinated because I I think that when we grew up, we did spend more time doing things that perhaps would be called whimsical, or I loved how you called it kitchen table talk. And now so much of our life is sort of devoted to these devices that we have in our hands, whether mm-hmm. they're iPads or phones or whatever else. Do you feel, as a mother, do you feel the same way? Are you worried about it? Or is that something that I, I'm sort of unnecessarily consumed with? No, uh, I
1: I am very uh, conscious of it, worried about it. Um, For a long time, actually, I had, uh, so I had, an uh, years ago, Claude, my husband, bought me an iPhone so that I would put, because I kept missing meetings. I was, it was, you know, it was right after our first daughter was born and I was a little spacey. And so he wanted me to use the calendar in the, in the phone. And um, so I got it. And pretty soon I was, you know, just checking the phone all the time. I was, I was addicted in that way. And at a certain point I said, I want my daydreams back, and I got rid of the iPhone and went back to a flip phone. And this was maybe five years ago, and and it really was precisely about um, my process, both as a writer and as an actor. But often, ideas or or choices that I might use in a performance come to me in times when my mind is is not actively working. So perhaps when I'm walking along the street which is New York is so great for because we all walk so much um, and something about the rhythm of the walking I think allows the mind to relax and ideas therefore to, to come up out of the subconscious anyway in those walking moments I was just flipping on my phone I mean uh, going on my phone between email and Facebook and email and Facebook like really like a rat in a cage pressing the buttons mm, and, wow. and I thought I am just giving up this gift of my own native creativity to this device. I mean, I'm walking into it like handcuff me, please phone of my own volition. And I thought that's really stupid. So I went back to the, to the flip phone. And, uh, then only just at the beginning of this year, in January of this year, I got an iPhone again because of being an actress doing things like putting myself on tape and being able to send it in. There's sort of professional, um, reasons for it. But I think, I mean, talking of narcissist, I I was laughing about the, you know, the book, The Medium is the Massage.
0: I it's, don't actually. <laughs> it's,
1: it's Marshall McLuhan and it is called The Medium is the Massage. I was pointed that out by Paul Miller, um, the artist and DJ, because uh, I always thought it was The Medium is the Message, but it's The Medium is the Massage. And uh, the, one of the points of which is that, you know, through the technology comes the kind of thing that you're going to do with that technology and so the fact that our phones these days have a button that reverses the camera to photograph yourself Mm -hmm. to make a selfie and then instantly shares that to the internet in in various platforms uh makes people do that Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden we and I include myself in this because I um you know do things that I find funny and then uh put them up on the internet. But there is a side of me that really wonders, is this just, is this just vanity? It's something that I, that I really question. So I question it in myself. And then looking at my children, um, our daughter Philomena, who's 10 really is into with all her friends, this program called musically in which they make short music videos, like snippets of music videos to pop songs. And, uh, but it's also a social media mm-hmm. platform. Yes, right. And, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of like her looking at herself. Um, and I, I have to say that I'm sort of of two minds about it because I don't think that it's, it's certainly not the way we grew up. And, uh, it's not healthy on a certain, I mean, uh, I think it's, it's, it's not ideal. On the other hand, I think that if one wants to become, for example, a performer, it might be quite good to figure out all right mm. this is this is this is me, this is how I am in front of the camera and to begin to know yourself in that way, so I have to say that i that i and who knows what either of my daughters um, Maud or Philomena will decide to do with their life, but um it's something that I wonder had I had that technology as a younger person, would I have known myself a little bit better? Mm. I think I wouldn't have because I think I would have been. Resistant to looking mm. at that time. I wasn't, I certainly wasn't the person who walked into a party at the age of 12 and took over the room. That was something that happened quite honestly when I started smoking and drinking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I hear you. <ya. laughs> <laughs> Great tools for coming out of your shell. <laughs> uh, it's funny that you you mentioned that because I think there was um, a tweet in 2016 that you said something like, I I just took a picture of myself to make sure that I still exist. Yes, and and part of me I, I do wonder what this fascination with you know snapping photos of ourselves and and looking at them just to make sure that we're still there. I mean, I, you know who knows where where we're headed as a civilization? But part of me wonders if that's part of this process of you know are we disappearing and are we at this point sort of fighting against that idea to make sure that you know, by looking at ourselves constantly to just, just sort of hang on to something. But yeah. you know, it's well uh, a hypothesis right. more than anything. <laughs> but I wonder if that's where narcissism
1: actually comes from. It's the, because narcissism isn't about the sense of self, it's about the reflection of self, right? Mm-hmm. I mean that's why it's called narcissism, I suppose, because of his face in the the pond. Um and yeah, it's it's a it's a very strange um a strange time that we live in i think that's that's reflective and and certainly people are curating their most um uh, advertising life yes Th- that that's uh it's uh, you were asking about beauty before in mm-hmm. in a way the sort of funny interesting thing about social media and the kinds of things that many people choose to share uh is that they're not beautiful. They're mm. quite corporate. Yes, as uh, the filters and everything else. Yeah, mm-hmm. but even the kinds of things we decide to photograph, it's not, I mean, if you wanted to watch a cinema, a great film, it's not a bunch of people sort of smiling in front of a fancy place. Mm. It's uh, it's something tender or beautiful or funny or uh, th- there's, there's story to it. Mm. I think in in a lot of the things that, are posted. I mean, obviously, there's a billion million exceptions to it, but, but um, I think s- s- social media tends to have quite a lot in common with advertising in terms of an aesthetic, the kinds of things we post, and then obviously the relationship to advertisers, because isn't that how they are funded?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is through
1: the fact that your Facebook clicks let them know that you have a subscription to Theatre for a New Audience, which mm-hmm. then comes back. You know, um, so so it really is a direct relationship with advertisers
0: well it's um that leads me to something that that you wrote which was was quite beautiful and you'll have to tell me i i know that you went to harvard and this was in signet is that how you say it the signet the yes the signet and and what is that i i don't the know the signet is a is an art society at at harvard
1: um that uh has been around gosh T.S. Eliot was part of it, and he graduated in 1910. I forget when it was founded, sometime before then. But uh, an art society where people gather and meet for lunch. And actually, while you've just mentioned the signet, uh, in these days after the death of Michael Friedman, I just want to, to salute him and his life and his work. The great composer... And, and writer and musician who was a friend of mine from that very society. Oh, wow. wow. Michael Friedman. Um, I hadn't seen him for, for, for many years and always hoped that our paths would cross, but he just died, mm. um, a couple of days ago. And so it's been very, very sad for the theater world and for all his friends and, and for the very people. young. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was 41. Yeah. Um, yeah, awful. Anyway, uh, to Michael and, uh, um, And those times that I remember so fondly in the Signet. Mm -hmm. But the Signet was a room where where people got together. And in those days, it was pre-technology. I mean, I graduated from uh, college in 1995. So people didn't really have cell phones even. Uh, and there was no boombox or anything in this room, which now the students have. I love that. even hearing the word boombox. That's great. <laughs> yes, it's true. It wasn't iPods or anything. <laughs> in those pre-flood days. Uh, but there was a piano and the likes of Michael Friedman would mm. just play the piano. Mm. And, uh, while well, we all drank and smoked and, and there was a shared, shared artistic uh, community and, um, something that we built together, Mm -hmm. you know, whoever was in the room built it.
0: Well, and it's funny because we actually, I think sort of, we met because of a a mutual friend who also was at Harvard, I I believe at the same time, but it's amazing how those relationships just sort of keep swirling around and leading to new, to new opportunities. And, Mm -hmm. um, what, what you wrote in the, the signet, is there a, a, um, a magazine that comes out? No, they interviewed me for, I think it, it must be an online thing. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you said, our megaculture is not so much geared towards small, delicate experiences. It turns away from the strangeness and potential discomfort of being face-to-face with another human being who is in some fundamental way naked, stripped bare, down to the heart. And it struck me while you were talking about how these social media images are getting more and more corporate- that perhaps because it is so uncomfortable, at times it can be uncomfortable, that that we're losing a little bit of our ability to sit together across from each other and share the naked, stripped down versions of ourselves. I,
1: that's absolutely true. And it's funny, I mean, not to get too literal, but I think it's... Sex <laughs> suffers too. I mean, talking of naked and stripped down. Absolutely, I think that that strangeness and that like, what are we supposed to do here? What is this going to be? How is it going to be? What if I touch you here or you touch me here or we don't? That's part of the excitement. I didn't of, think of it that way. Of yeah. everything. Uh-huh. I mean, that's what makes us be surprised and, you know, Laugh and uh melt into each other, and uh so yes, I think that fundamentally the technology is not sexy mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like it it's very sleek and seemingly sexy, but when you get right yeah, down like to porn it, yes i any everybodys i think should read your article that you wrote on salon dot com oh. about porn um and the proliferation i just I, it I, I, it rang very true to me, especially as someone who's still single and and dating at time. I, I'm a millennial, but barely, but I have dated millennials who are quite young not not quite, who are so much younger than I am <laughs> not, not, uh, not true but who are younger and and they're so much different as lovers than than people of our generation hmm. and um and that it is it's it's sad to me that. I mean, I'm lucky because I can still choose from a group of, of of men to get to know who are older and who came about pre-internet. But you know, for those young women and men who are coming to age now, I, I, I am sure they are a little bit lost, and and they perhaps don't even understand that they are. But. Yes,
1: I th- I think that's that's absolutely true. Um, my dad, though, however, even, even though I completely agree with you, and it could go quite far down the road of uh, uh, <laughs> a kind of nihilism <laughs> based on where we're headed technologically as a society. But dad gave me uh, a, a somewhat cheering thought the yes, other day. Yes, what is it? Let's hear it. <laughs> he he, he who is fond of seeing the huge picture of things said, you know, it, it thus it has always been. At a certain point, you know, the the press was inv- invented and and people began to rely on written materials and people said, well, we'll lose our memories, we'll lose our ability to, to recall, uh, which I'm sure was true. They hmm. did because it used to be in Shakespeare's time uh, that people would say, first of all, they went to hear a play rather than see a play. And I, I have heard it told that people who did go and hear that play could then go home and recite speeches no, from it. Really, that there was just a much, much greater ability to catch and retain mm. spoken word. Wow! Um, and when you think about it, in Homeric times and these these storytellers who who went uh, around, obviously had great bodies of literature mm-hmm. within them. And um, anyway. He said, so, so we did, we did lose our memory, but then we had access to a greater range of knowledge through mm-hmm. books and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and the same is perhaps true with this, you know, with, with the kinds of devices that we have now. But without a doubt, it, it will change us. And I, um, if I write another article sometime soon, it might be on my belief about the rights of machines, which, <laughs> For somebody who is kind of a Luddite and doesn't really love technology <laughs> that much, I, I actually believe quite strongly that we have to think about machines with, with rights because I think the day is mm. coming when, when our lives will be so entwined, as they already kind of are, but where robots will be part of us. And if we are tyrannical towards the machines... Mm. and Relentless, yes. We wow. are the tyrants, yes. even if they're just machines. I mean, I think that to behave tyrannically is to be a tyrant, regardless of to whom that behavior is intended or who who, who that behavior affects.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, uh, I love that thought. So I th- I, th- I do think that we have to think about like what we have that uh, basically surveillance system in the house called Echo, the Amazon yes Alexa Echo thing, and ah. I always make everyone. I get very cross at everyone in the family because they say like, "Echo, play blah blah blah." Play in the case of Maud. Echo, play boogie with the hoodie. <laughs> That's what she's really into. <laughs> She'd probably say, "No, no, that was last year, Mom. But Anyway, last right. year it was a boogie. With I've a never hoodie. even heard of it. So <laughs> he's a he's a young rapper from 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 New York. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, she'll say, and I say, Maud, say please. <laughs> and then the problem is that at first the machine doesn't understand if you don't put the please in the right. Ah. The, 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 you'll say They'll say like, you say, play blah, 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 please. Comma, the, please. I'm sorry, I can't help you with blah, 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 please.
0: <laughs> so you have to say, right, please you're defeated. play. Please play. But it's possible. It is possible. It's funny. I uh, I feel like I grew up with a similar sense of manners installed in me. And I I wonder if it's the Irish parent. Um, yeah. I, I have an Irish dad. You have an Irish mother that... And I'm appreciative of it. Yeah, I used to have to to answer our our phone. Roy Residence. This is Aaron speaking. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. People don't know how to answer the phone these days. <laughs> they don't even say, "Please may I speak to so right. and so." And oh, it's true. It's true. We don't have a ton of time left, and I do want to hit on something specific because I think it's important, and we don't talk about it as much as maybe we should. But the idea of failure. Um, it uh, when. I was reading some of the things on you, it was, uh, it, it struck a chord in me because when I was a teenager, I felt a deep sense of failure at the ballet career that I had or didn't have. It didn't live up to my own expectations. And it hung with me for quite a long time. And you deferred Harvard for a year to take a year off to write. And you wrote that that was a, fa- it felt like a failure because instead of writing, I think you were, you, you said, smoked a lot of cigarettes, you smoked a lot of cigarettes, which <laughs> <laughs> sounds very romantic. <laughs> I mean, that was a, maybe a long time ago that you wrote that, but did it really feel like a failure? How did it let, how did you let it go? How do you let failure go in general?
1: Failure. It's funny, I've been talking with my dear friend Rebecca Kirshner, about this subject, because she's writing something a little bit on the subject. And um and so am I. Perhaps there's there's a I mean when when you start to reckon with your life, uh yeah, failure is failure is is such a part of it. Um and I, I suppose it's just it's just part of the life. Uh, I, I have this line of Rebecca's in my head that I want to say, but because she's about to write it, I can't. And now it's the only it's the only thing that I can think of to say. Uh, though, I will say that uh, you know I feel I feel failure um, frequently. I go through the circumstances don't change within within a life. Let's say from my life. Let's say within the course of a month and one day you'll find me on top of the world, and the other really down in the dumps. And it's something internal. It's really a way of looking at the self. And I'm sure it has to do with, you know, probably mood, just the, 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 the kinds of changes that happen just regularly in a person's life. But uh, but it is a way of looking at things. And, and, and if we do uh, begin to see the journey as... As the destination, not to be super cheesy, but um, it uh, it's essential. And I, I remember hearing about uh, an actress, a very well-known actress, who apparently was really dreadful when she first started out <laughs> and uh, just kept, you know, being awful and not getting jobs, but being truly awful. And it was through the sense of uh, coming to terms with who she was, accepting it, and maybe not trying to push against it, hmm. but, uh, in a way, go deeper into the parts that were not good about herself. Instead of trying to push against them, something real came. And she then went on to be cast in something that led to a, a hmm. very, very brilliant career. And, uh, and, and it was a, a, a somebody who knows this person said to me, um, you know, that, that, uh, That that probably, um, those early days, that failure is what led to the success. And so I think that success from an outward, I mean, anyone can look at another person's life and say there's success there. And often from inside that life, it doesn't feel like that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's always important to remember that. that. Did you ever see, there was that film about Joan Rivers, who I always thought, um, rest her soul, uh, was... You know, she was Joan Rivers the whole time. She mm. was, she was that person. <laughs> no apologies. At, at, at all moments. But in the, uh, and I kind of thought she was equally successful mm. through all the times that I knew her. But from her perspective, it was not like that. There were massive ups and downs. And, uh, and I don't know. That's, I guess just artistically, that's what it, that's what it looks like on the inside. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of successes and failures mm-hmm. and, and they just they go with the territory.
0: And it, it, you know, if if we're if we're to move forward, we have to fail.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What's the Beckett line? Fail again, fail better.
0: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Uh, let's see. I feel like oh, there's so much I want to ask you in so little time. Uh, I I loved reading about your fondness, especially maybe in your college years, bit of. of Wanting to play male roles, oh yeah, is that still? I mean, if, if you graduated Harvard in '95, that I mean, you know, it's. I feel like it's a an, something that we talk about quite a lot right now, but not as much in 1995. So you must have been seen as quite a rebel. I think maybe days. I was. I mean, as I told you,
1: I did that play about Oscar Wilde, and and um, uh, and did did quite a lot of sort of um male roles. I played Edmund in Long Day's Journey Into tonight. Um while I was an undergraduate. But it's interesting. Right now, I'm really interested in playing women. Mm. Um, I feel that women's stories and and women's lives are something that I'm very eager to explore. And uh, I, I read some, some years ago, I was involved in a play called um, Shakespeare's Sister that took texts of Marguerite Duras and Virginia Woolf, a little bit of a Room of One's Own. So in preparing for that play, I I uh, and I kind of ha- my character, at least for a part of it, was sort of the Virginia Woolf character. I mean, all of us were were read texts from Virginia Woolf, but um I had occasion to re-read uh, A Room of One's Own, and she talks about going back in history uh to to figure out why why there hadn't been a woman Shakespeare? It, mm. Was it because a woman couldn't write as well as Shakespeare, or what were the what what were women doing that they weren't writing books like Shakespeare? And uh, and the conclusion she was that she, she couldn't find anything about women. Mm. There was nothing written about what women did. Mm-hmm. It was not considered material. It didn't matter. It was irrelevant. And wow. I think that. It is not irrelevant <laughs> what what women do and how women spend our time and um what our lives are uh, and so while I have loved playing men and I think as a younger person, a lot of that was because I found those roles powerful and dynamic and challenging and sexy and you know great uh, i I challenge myself to to find those roles that, that are women's roles and make those roles. I mean, as a writer, to, to write roles for women that uh, hopefully, without, without ever exaggerating, because I really am interested in kind of a truth-telling um, about what people's mm. lives are like, um, but explore what it is to be, what it is to be a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, that it's many, many, many things. Of course.
0: I I have quite a few women friends who, you know, I grew up in an era where being a feminist meant that you sort of um, took on male qualities. Mm Mm-hmm that was what was demonstrated to me to 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 feel strong in my my masculinity and my femininity i had to sort of assert myself as as we stereotypically imagine a man might and i have many women friends who who felt the same way and it's as we age i find it's actually become quite difficult to keep up that charade, charade. Hmm. And, and 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 almost physically difficult uh, to sort of to 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 keep up, and it's I I just love that you're interested in exploring and writing about what it's actually what feminine what being a woman actually is, and and you're right it is so many things in my experience I can't you know say is like anybody else's but to be allowed to be myself as mm-hmm. a woman, um, not fully articulating what I mean, but it, it's quite beautiful to me that you're choosing to
1: well and I think being oneself. That. Thank you. And, and, but I think being oneself is, I mean, that's the journey of all of our lives, is to figure out what, what that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a, a journey of creation and discovery that never ends until, until the last gasp. Uh, and even then, Andre Gregory said, uh, he said, my death, that's going to be my last creative act. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe it doesn't even end there. <laughs> uh, figuring out who I am is is certainly the the goal of this, you know. Th- th- being young and kind of fabulous, th- then that went away, and then I, uh, you know, have been in in we each play so many roles in our lives. Yes, and there's a there's a <laughs> there's a moment. I'm right now in a in a moment where I'm not quite sure who I am, to be perfectly honest, and um, and so it's i think my task and my my happiness and productivity and fruitfulness as a as an artist but as a human as well will come out of that investigation and it's in that investigation that that that, that something that is truly me that will probably have qualities of yin and yang masculine and feminine but uh that that i should I, I, I that it should be explored from the inside out is probably the i mean the ideal way to do it i don't know if it actually works out that sure. way because we do get so much reflected back at us mm-hmm. uh, and you know our friends and the people in our lives kind of guide us and say well that's not you or well, i don't know maybe it is
0: <laughs> maybe it <laughs> is me um uh, two short questions before we we wrap things up. Uh, your love of literature, your passion for it, is something that inspires me, and that I'd love to to ride on the coattails of. In a in a day and age where you know I sort of grab Instagram rather than Ulysses, yeah. what what would um, for listeners, you know, one book that you would say, hey, don't look at Instagram or Facebook, but read this. What would you oh right gosh. now?
1: <laughs> right now, so the, the, I'll tell. If I may, I'll answer it, not with what I'm currently reading, which is The Wizard of Lies about Bernie Madoff, which is super fascinating, <laughs> Yes, but uh, not necessarily the, the book that, um, you know, I would say, <laughs> drop everything and go and read about Bernie Madoff. Uh, I have really loved big epic works of literature. I have found that putting in the time for books like um, War and Peace and Remembrance of Things Past of Proust um, – uh, has, has paid off mm-hmm. in, in measures that in, in, in ways that I, that I never would have expected and has enriched my life and, uh, allows me to see, Oh, I hear the front door. This is Claude coming in. Um, <laughs> He'll discover us in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, amongst his shirts. Uh, but, um, yeah, those, those big epic books have, I've, I've really loved them. Uh, I also, right now, my friend Claire Chase just gave me Maggie Nelson to read. Hmm. I've I'd never read her before, but I'm, that's who I'm, that's a, apart from Bernie Madoff.
0: That's, that's what I'm reading <laughs> right now. Oh, well, good. Those are some good directions, various directions to go. And we'll sort of, we'll wrap up by, by start, you know, ending where we started, which is with the idea of beauty. And, you know, I, I love when I walked in your door, your home is beautiful and you said, thank you. And I'm, I'm aware of its beauty, um, (laughs) which sounded much more humble when you said it, than I just said it. It was very humble. Uh, Do you consider yourself a beautiful person? Are you aware of your beauty? Oh gosh. Um, I think, uh, oh, hello Claude.
1: Hey, we're still (laughs) recording in the closet. I'm going to close the door. I've just been asked, do I consider myself beautiful? Um, oh, Claude gave some sweet answer. <laughs> it sounded sweet i didn 't really know um, I think that honestly i'm i am there there yes, uh, but my beauty is most potent when i 'm not concerned about it hmm. and uh, and I think that that's probably true of most people um, that we shine. Most when we are uh, kind of allowing our the borders of our skin to melt into the world, rather than hold to ourselves uh, very tightly. Like you know that Yeats line: "How can we know the dancer from the dance?" Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: a dancer is is at her best or at his best when. When he or she just becomes the dance, and I think that when we become our life or become our action, it's there that we really shine. Uh, and 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 going back to the technology, I think that that it impedes our beauty because we're so focused on seeing ourselves as a package, and uh, and real beauty has has to do with action and um, uh, in a way submission. Uh, it's, it's, it's full of radiance and light and, and energy and not static. Hmm.
0: Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's, we'll end there and give your husband back his bedroom and office and closet. (laughs) Thank you so much, Winston. This is, um your generosity was uh, very clear to me the moment that I met you. And uh, it doesn't go as somebody that's not from New York and hasn't been here an incredible amount of time. It was lovely to have met you and to now have the opportunity to get to know you better. So thank you. Thank you, Erin. What a lovely conversation. It was
1: super enjoyable. And to talk about all these big ideas on a Wednesday afternoon.
0: It's <laughs> is, is really nice. <laughs> Agreed. All right. Well, goodbye, listeners. Hey, thanks for listening to The Aaron Roy Show. I'll leave you with Liz Delise and her song, Clouds Up Ahead. Clouds Up Ahead.